regardless of where you find yourself, we're so glad that you're here. And we've been exploring uh, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest written account about the person and the life of Jesus. And we're asking the question, who is he? And really, why does he matter? And we've seen each week, Mark is kind of peeling back the layers, showing us who Jesus really is and who he claims to be. So tonight we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, just a few verses. I'll read it for us, and then we'll jump in and chat about it. It says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it, can we turn me down by the way or something, I'm all feedbacky. I'm baconatory and feedbacky, so this is, uh, where was I? Let's just restart this whole evening. Um, 19, verse 19. Thanks, Evan. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray before we consider it. Father, we would ask that you would meet us. As we find ourselves, um, you know that we come into this room in all sorts of different conditions. Some of us come in here just buried under guilt. Some of us come into this room extremely angry. Angry at our parents, angry at our professors, angry at our roommates. Some of us find ourselves tonight uh, just depressed, overwhelmed, looking for some word, some hope, some form of connection with you. Some of us find ourselves glad, excited, eager to meet friends, eager to connect with you. Father, regardless of where we find ourselves, will you come and will you meet with us? Will you commune with us? Will you teach us? Open up our eyes, unclog our ears, and lead us into that which is truthful and beautiful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm no different from you. I like Ryan Gosling. I like his, uh, I like his work. I would even say... Um, I find him dreamy, and uh, his movies in particular, Crazy Stupid Love, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed. Drive, thought was very interesting. <laughs> a little uh, uneasy, you know, it's not good on the stomach, but it was a good movie. But really, probably one of my most favorite movies that Ryan Gosling is in is one of his lesser known works called Lars and the Real Girl. If you uh, haven't seen it, it's incredible. It's more of his kind of indie weird stuff. And he plays a particular role in that movie that is very bizarre for for a Ryan Gosling role. Because he plays this kind of um, single, incredibly painfully, socially awkward, lonely, weird, shy guy. And so the movie is such that at the beginning of his life, his mom had died. And right before the movie starts, kind of the story begins is that his father has recently passed away. So here's this guy who's carrying around a truckload of pain. And he is so painfully shy of of being around humans. He lives by himself. He's kind of this recluse. And he's just really awkward and hard to be around. And so he orders a life-size blow-up sex doll. 
And he dresses it up in clothes, puts her in a wheelchair, and, and wheels this doll around town, telling everybody that it's his girlfriend, who is an overseas missionary named Bianca. And uh, the thing that's interesting is that everybody starts kind of... Because they want to love Lars, they start playing along with the fiction. So he'll wheel this sex doll into church. And the, you know, all the ladies from church will like walk and be like, oh, how are you, Bianca? Like, how are things? And they'll ask, they'll ask Bianca about stuff. And actually, it's, it's one of those movies where the church, it's one of the only movies that I can think of where the church is presented in a positive light. Where they're trying to love Lars, they're surrounding him, they're talking with Bianca. Everybody's in on it. He'll take Bianca to um, like the doctor, and the doctor will like check Bianca's blood pressure and like do the stethoscope thing. And even some of the ladies from the church like took Bianca away from Lars so that they could kind of go shopping with her and take her out on the town. And everybody is in on this sort of thing to try to really love and surround Lars. But the thing is, she is not real. She is a fake plastic doll, and he has this real relationship with this fake plastic doll. And if you think about it, you can take that idea out of the movie and really apply it to your spiritual life and ask yourself the question, uh, is it possible to have a genuine, real, heartfelt relationship with a fake plastic God? A God that you've just sort of invented? I think it's very possible. And so that's kind of the question I want to ask tonight is, how do you know if your spirituality is authentic? I mean, some of you are rejecting Christianity, some of you are embracing Christianity, but the thing is, are you rejecting the real thing? Is the thing that you're rejecting the real Christian God? And is the thing that you're embracing the real Christian God? Or wherever you find yourself, the question is, how do you know if your spirituality is authentic, authentic, if it's legit, if it's real? Well, Jesus helps us by showing us three things that you can know, three ways that you will know that your spirituality is authentic. You will know that your spirituality is authentic when you, under, when you enjoy the love of Jesus first, when you submit to the agenda of Jesus, and then when you understand the story of Jesus. Okay, so those are the three things we're going to look at. You'll know that your spirituality is authentic. It's real, it's legit, that you're interacting with the real God. When you enjoy the love of Jesus, when you submit to the agenda of Jesus, and you understand the story of Jesus. First, when you enjoy the love of Jesus. Well, here's how the story begins. It, it, it begins by informing you that there are these disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, and they were fasting. And the language implies that they were fasting a lot. They were fasting all the time. In fact, if you jump over to Luke uh, chapter 18, you find out that the, that the Pharisees, which, by the way, these were like the religious professionals, they fasted twice a week. Think about that. Twice a week. No food. Very hungry people. But actually in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God commanded for you to fast once a year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the day that God set aside and said, this is the day that I want you to fast. But for the Pharisees, the religious people, they just said, that doesn't feel like that's enough. We're going to kind of up the ante and fast twice a week. And so that's what they did. And because they were doing that all the time, that had become the new standard for measuring your spirituality, for measuring your spiritual health. It's very much like today. There are extra biblical things that we use today as standards to measure how you're doing spiritually. Some people will say, you know you're doing well spiritually by how many quiet times you're having. Or you'll know how well you're doing spiritually by how often you're sharing the gospel with other people. 
or you know how well you're doing spiritually by how emotionally juiced up you get in worship. None of those things are in the Bible, by the way. But culturally speaking, that's just kind of what we use extra-biblically to take your spiritual temperature. And that's what was going on in this particular story. Culturally speaking, fasting was the thing. If you knew that, you, if you wanted to know if you were spiritually real, spiritually serious, on fire for Jesus, it was because you fasted. So when these dudes come up to Jesus and his disciples and nobody's fasting, they're like, dude, what's the deal? I thought y'all were legit. I thought y'all were spiritually serious. Why is nobody fasting? And look at Jesus' response. If you look at verse 19, he could have responded in a lot of different ways. He could have said, dude, y'all, chill out with the fasting thing. Like, once a year is kind of the standard here. Not twice a week. Like, calm down, psychos. He could have gone that route. Or he could have said, hey, I'm actually pro-fasting. In my sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, I talk about fasting and I assume that I want you to fast. If you didn't hear it, rock the download. Rock the podcast. So he, you know, he could have gone one of these two directions. He doesn't. Here's his response. Verse 19. He answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Jesus starts talking about weddings. You're like, what? What's he doing here? Let me illustrate it this way to kind of explain where he's going. Uh, back in 2006, in a, on a hot day in April in Memphis, Tennessee, at Second Press, I got married to the woman of my dreams, Catherine Drinker, who's not here. She's normally here tonight, but she's not. Uh, we got married in 2006. And I've done a lot of weddings because uh, this is kind of what RUF campus ministers do. We, we marry off our students. And so I've been to a lot of weddings but of all the weddings I've been to, mine was the best. And um, that's not me being biased. That's just objective fact. And so mine, mine really was the best. And so uh, we, you know, we had this, uh, like this enormous spread of food. We had a whole section of food dedicated just to mashed potatoes. You know, one of those little mashed potato bar things. You put it like the little martini glass and like load it up. It was totally awesome. We had a um, complete open bar. We had a live band, a Motown band that played um, like Outcast and Vanilla Ice the whole night. It was totally awesome. All of our friends, all of our best friends were our groomsmen and our bridesmaids. Now, what if in the middle of that wedding reception, when everyone's dancing, the drinks are flowing, everybody's just you know, destroying the food, taking all the mashed potatoes to the face. That's how they would eat it. Um, what if in the middle of that, the music's playing, everyone's having a good time, I look over across the way and I see my wife in her wedding dress, sitting by herself, in a corner, arms folded, heads down, not eating, not drinking, not dancing. I go over to her, I'm like, honey, we just got married, like, celebrate, like, why are you depressed already, like, that will come, why, why now, like, let's dance, like, let's go, and what if her response was, well, you know, Matt, I have chosen this day, and I thought that this would be appropriate for this day to be the day that I fasted, and abstained from food, and really just considered my need for Jesus, that would be weird. That would be wrong. That would not be okay. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's kind of setting this wedding story up, except he's putting himself in the story as the bridegroom, as the groom. He could have used any image he wanted. He said, the, the king is with you. 
The prophet is with you. The priest is with you. But instead he uses this image of intimacy and love. And here's what he's basically saying. He's saying, look, authentic spirituality is when your life is marked by and characterized celebrating the fact that I love you. You will know that your spirituality is authentic, that it's legit, that it's real. When your life really is marked by this sense of delight and celebration over the fact that Jesus is your groom and he aggressively, intensely, relentlessly, intimately loves you. That's the first thing that he's saying here. But let's just say, okay, let's think about it this way. Let's go a step deeper. Let's say that you've never been a Tupelo honey. And everybody and their mother that you know has already been and they're telling you about it and saying, you've got to go to Tupelo, honey. It's awesome. The biscuits are awesome. You've got to get the BLT, you know, whatever, on and on and on. Everybody's saying it's awesome. You've got to go there. And you believe them. You really do believe that Tupelo, honey, is good. And so one day, you and your friend, you go down to Market Square and you sit outside so you can creep on people and look at them. And you order your food. And sure enough, eventually they bring you the biscuits with that little shot glass of blueberry jam that comes with it. And you taste the buttery, fluffy, flaky deliciousness that is, are the biscuits at Tublo Honey. Now, when, when you've tasted it, you have not gained any new information about the food at Tupelo Honey. You already knew it was going to be good. Everyone already told you it was good. So what's the difference? The difference is now you are experiencing what you already knew to be true. You're tasting what you've already cognitively signed off on. And here's my point. You can know cerebrally, cognitively, theologically that God is good, that God loves you, that God is for you. It is a very different thing to actually experience it. To taste it. You can have, even have other people around you tell you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. It's one thing to have people tell you God loves you. It's a very n- different thing to taste it, to experience it. And what Jesus is saying here is authentic spirituality is fundamentally when you relish in and delight what Jesus has done for you, how much he has loved you. But here's really kind of where we screw it up. Here's where we get off. Because we pervert our spirituality and make this thing all about what we're doing for him. We obsess about, think about, and really make our life about what we're just going to do for him. And while that's good and that's fine, we completely miss it. Because we take the focus off of the Christ and put it on the Christian life. Which means that we're really just kind of obsessed with ourselves. Here's a quick quote from Eugene Peterson before I jump on. Eugene Peterson's a pastor, theologian, great author, one of my favorites. Here's what he says. He says, we've all met a certain type of spiritual person. She's a wonderful person. She loves the Lord. She prays and reads the Bible all the time. But all she thinks about is herself. She's not a selfish person, but she's always at the center of everything she's doing. How can I witness better? How can I do this better? How can I take care of this person's problem better? It's just me, 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 disguised in a way that's difficult to see because her spiritual talk disarms us. Here's my point. Christianity is not primarily about what you're doing for God. It is about relishing in the fact of what he's already done for you. And so the question before we move on, I just want to ask you, which do you obsess over more? Which do you think about more? I want to grow. I need to grow more. I need to improve this. I need to change this. Is that where the the bulk of your thought goes? Which are good thoughts, by the way. 
Is that where the bulk of your thought goes? Or is the bulk of your thought to relishing in, resting in, delighting in, experiencing what he's already done for you? That's how you can know if your spirituality is authentic. It's when you enjoy the love of Jesus. That's the first thing. And then, but Jesus goes on. He gives you a second test. The second test, as it were, is to say, okay, you'll know that your spirituality is authentic, that it's legit. Not just if you enjoy the love of Jesus, but it's when you submit to the agenda of Jesus. And let me show you where I get this. Jesus kind of gives you two images here to make his point. Look at verse 21. Here's what he's saying. Look, if, you, if you've got this old pair of jeans, and it's got a tear in it, and you want to patch it up, what you don't do is you take a new piece of cloth and put it on the old pair of jeans. Because if you sew that new pair of, that new cloth on the old jeans, and then you wash it, the new cloth is going to shrink. But because it's attached to the jeans, it will pull the jeans and rip it and actually make the tear worse. If you want to know how to patch your jeans, there you go. But his point is this, is that the old doesn't mix with the new. The old and the new don't mix. And then if you go on in verse 22, he gives you the second image to kind of make a very similar point. But he's saying, look, when you want to make new wine, if you want to make wine, what you do is you put new wine into new skins. They didn't have bottles back then, so they put it in animal skins. And new skins were kind of flexible and stretchy. Fun thought to think about stretchy animal skin. But if you put wine into a stretchy animal skin and you cap it, as the wine ferments, it releases gas and begins to kind of expand. And because it's flexible like a balloon, it'll kind of balloon out. Fine. But if you put new wine in an old skin, an, an old skin, one that's already been used, is not stretchy anymore. It's kind of like brittle. So as you cap it and as it ferments and releases gas, it has nowhere to expand and breaks and the wine goes out. Here's his basic point with these two metaphors. It's this. Jesus will not fit into your pre-existing ways of thinking or living. Jesus is not just some sort of religious add-on to your life. He won't fit. The old and the new, him and your life don't fit if it's just him kind of coming into it. Here's what I mean. Let's say I had two phones up here. Let's say I had an iPhone and a Droid. One good, one not. And let's just say, you know, here are these two phones. They're, they're two different companies, two different, uh, you know, providers, two different operating systems. Let's say you downloaded the same app onto both phones. You download Angry Birds onto both phones. That doesn't change really anything about the phone, right? It's still the same phone. It's still the same company. It's still the same basic operating system. And what Jesus is doing in this, these two images is he's saying... I'm not some app that you download into your life that you just kind of click on whenever it's convenient or whenever you need me. Because what that is, and a lot of people basically think that's what Jesus is. You download a little Jesus into your life and you click on him when it's convenient. But basically, at the end of the day, your life, the operating system of your life still runs basically the same. And Jesus is saying, that's not how I roll. That's not how I work. I, I don't just come into your life as an app, as a little add-on. I'm not a religious accessory. If I come into your life, I have to completely overhaul the operating system. I have to completely change the fundamental structure of your life from the foundation up. That's the only way that I will work. That's the only way that I come into your life in the first place. So, okay, think of it like this. Let's say you go to the doctor because you're terribly sick, and the, and the doctor looks at you and says, look, we've got to get you into surgery right now. Because if you don't get surgery, you're going to die. 
And you look at them and say, okay, okay, let's do surgery. I want, I want to be healed. I want to be fixed. Let's do this. I want to make one quick um, request. Can you just not cut me on our way to surgery? I mean, can you just not cut me in this whole surgery thing? And, and the surgeon looks at you and says, I have to. That's how I got to get in there to like heal you and fix you. And you say, I'm all for being healed. I'm all for being fixed. I want to be changed, but please just don't cut me. The surgeon will then look at you and say, well, then I can't help you. I can't heal you. The only way for you to be healed is for you to be totally vulnerable to the surgeon. To basically let him have his way with you, trusting that whatever he's going to do to you, even if it looks and feels violent, cutting you open, you trust that it's ultimately for your good. And Jesus is saying, look, the only way that I can heal you, the only way that I can fix you is for you to hand over your rights and authorize me to have complete authority to rearrange and do surgery on you. And so let me ask you a question. If you consider yourself to be a Christian tonight, have you authorized Jesus to do surgery on the way that you think about coolness? I mean, basically think about it. When you leave middle school, nobody actually leaves middle school. We're all still in middle school, myself included. But what I mean by that is everybody still wants to be cool and be in the inner circle and be well thought of and have everybody like you. We're all still there. But I've noticed Tennessee students really love being cool. We love it. I'll put me in that sentence as well. We love it. I'm not a Tennessee student, by the way. Uh, but I have had someone ask me if I was a sophomore recently. But okay. <laughs> so we love being cool here at Tennessee. And what that means is if you live your life on the premise of I want to be cool, what that means is you have to Avoid people that you think are socially awkward. You don't want to talk with them because you don't want to talk with them. But also, you don't want to be seen with them because they kind of jeopardize your social standing. And so what we can do is we can baptize this approach of just sort of avoiding awkward, socially weird people. We can baptize it all in the name of, well, I'm just really serious about community. And I really just want to invest in the relationships with the people that are like-minded like me. And what we're doing is, is we're just trying to fit Jesus into our social paradigm. And he won't do it. He said, I'm not going to just accommodate to your pre-existing notions of coolness and popularity. I'm going to explode it and liberate you to repent of your coolness and actually enable you to move towards people that are socially hard to be around. That's what Jesus does. Have you given him the authority? Have you authorized him to do surgery on the way that you think about coolness? Or have you done, have you authorized him to do surgery on the way that you think about dating? You know that there's a way of dating here. There's a way of dating kind of culturally speaking. It kind of goes like this, is that when a couple starts talking, at some point you transition from talking to like being official. Whatever in the world that means. Where you get official, and now you're officially dating, and uh, you, know, you put it on Facebook, or it's official. It's Facebook official. So when it becomes official, now what that typically means is that you now have rights to each other's bodies that you didn't have before. Meaning, of course, okay, so we're dating now. Of course we can make out on the couch for three hours because we're dating Of course we can feel each other up because we're dating. And what we're basically thinking is, you know, as long as we're committed to each other and we're not going all the way, 
Jesus is basically cool with it, okay? He doesn't like a lot of the stuff we do, but as long as we don't cross that line of going all the way, then he's still cool. But what we're basically doing is we're trying to fit Jesus into a culture's understanding of dating, and he won't fit. He won't fit. That's why so many of you are just unbelievably burdened by guilt and shame in your dating relationships, because he's not fitting. Because what he's going to do is he's going to come into your dating relationship and blow that notion up and actually liberate you to repent of your sexual sin and then move your relationship towards integrity and chastity. Look, this is basically his point. He won't let you just have a little bit of Jesus in your life. You can't just have a little sprinkle add-on religious decoration, a religious accessory of Jesus in your life where he basically just fits into your dreams and your hopes for what you want to do with your life because Jesus is going to explode your dreams for your life. You ever thought about that? He's just going to take your dreams and blow them up because they're so small and so selfish and he's going to give you much better ones, much bigger ones. But really, these two points go together. You can't enjoy the love of Jesus unless you really kind of hand over the surgical knife to him and say, have your way with me. Because unless you give him the authority to rearrange and do surgery on your life, you can't really enjoy him and have the intimacy with him because really then your, your life is really just all about you. And of course you're bored with him because your life is about you and he's just an add-on. How can you have any intimacy or companionship or delight in an app? You can't. At least long term. So what do we do with this? Because I know some of you are thinking, okay, well, how in the world, how can I hand over that much power to someone else and I don't know what they're going to do? That feels incredibly scary to sort of just say, okay, Jesus, have your way with me. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know what it's going to feel like. How can I trust him? Well, very briefly, let's look at this third thing because this third thing answers it. Your spirituality, you will know it's authentic. Not only when you enjoy the love of Jesus, when you submit to the agenda of Jesus, but lastly, when you understand the story of Jesus. Look at verse 19 and 20. This is basically what Jesus is doing. He's being a little bit cryptic here, but he's telling the gospel story. He says, look, I right now, the bridegroom, I'm with my disciples. And uh, while I'm with them, they're not grieving, but celebrating. But there is a day coming when I will be taken away. And on that day, they will grieve. Now, what day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of his death. The day when he gets taken away, literally, physically, ripped away from their presence, ripped away from the Father's presence. On on the cross, Jesus, like the garment, is being ripped. He, you know, like, like the wineskin, he's being torn and his blood is flowing out. Why? Why is he dying? Why is that sort of the central thing that he keeps coming back to? His death. Because on the cross, he is taking what you deserve. On the cross, he is bearing the penalty for all of our rebellion, all the, all the ways that we hate submitting to his agenda, all the ways we don't enjoy the love of him. He is receiving what we deserve precisely because he loves us. And really, the cross is therefore this historical, objective proof that God is for you, that God loves you. If he's willing to do this for you, he's willing to do anything for you. Think of it like this. Um, as you may or may not know, this Sunday is a, is a very important day because it is the series finale of Breaking Bad. And this is a very important day for me. So Sunday night, Breaking Bad, the series finale. 
Not the season finale, but the series finale. Which, by the way, side note, it will not conflict with Sunday Night Fellowship. I will, I will be at Sunday Night Fellowship, and then I will be at home by 9 o'clock to watch Breaking Bad. So I'll see y'all at Sunday Night Fellowship. Commercial over. So Breaking Bad, I, I was talking to my wife the other day, and without, if, if you're not familiar with the show, without kind of giving anything really away, I hope not. Um, the other day I was talking with my wife, and she was like, okay, we've got this the season, the series finale coming up. I'm going to be really unsatisfied if it's just Walter White just kind of going off and killing everybody. And I was like, okay, Catherine, my wife, I said, the writers of the show have never let us down, have they? No. We've been on this journey for five seasons now, and the writing has always been more brilliant, more satisfying, more unexpected than you realized. And so I, I said, I have complete trust that whatever they've got coming, based off of their previous track record, it's going to be good. So you can trust, going into the uncertainty of the future, that it's going to be good. Now let me make a same point with a better illustration. Here's a better illustration. Let's say that you're poor. Great way to start this illustration. Let's say you're poor and sick and dying. There's a lot of those tonight. But let's say you're sick and you're poor and you're dying. And you have to have this surgery done that is not being offered anywhere in the country. The only place that it's done is in Germany. And you don't have the money. You don't have the connections to get there. And if this thing does not get treated, you're going to die. But let's say that you have a friend who is a little bit more financially well-off than you. And they liquidate all of their assets They sell everything, their house, their car, to accumulate this money to get you in touch with this German surgeon who can perform the surgery on you. They bankrupt themselves to get you over there, which you do, and then you get the surgery done, and you're healed, and you live. Now, here's the question. How will you relate to that person that did that for you? My guess is that you will at least be somewhat convinced that they like you, that they have your best interests in mind, that they're for you, that they love you. If someone is willing to bankrupt themselves in order to save you, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they love you and they're for you. The cross gives you this reassurance beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you and he is for you. So when you understand the story of Jesus, what that does is that enables you to trust him that enables you to hand over the rights of your life to him, trusting that whatever he's going to do, even if it feels like he's doing surgery without anesthesia, it is for your good. You're absolutely convinced, even when he begins to confront and challenge the way that you think about dating, the way that you think about success, the way you think about popularity, the way you think about sexuality, the way you think about alcohol, whatever. When he starts pressing and confronting and doing surgery on those things, you you begin to be convinced he's not punishing me. He's not out to get me. He is for me. I can trust him. So is your spirituality authentic? Are you submitting to the agenda of Jesus? Are you enjoying the love of Jesus? Do you understand the story of Jesus? Look, I'll, I'll end here and tell you how Lars and the Real Girl ends. So spoiler alert. Here's how it ends. Lars gets asked out by this girl that's in his office named Margo. And at that point in the movie, which is about two-thirds of the way through, when, when she asks him out on a date, suddenly Bianca gets sick. 
You know, Bianca's the doll girl, his girlfriend, the missionary, Bianca. She starts getting sick. And the rest of the movie is her kind of health going downhill. And so she, you know, she's taken to the hospital. She's got tubes all in her. She's got like the oxygen mask on her. And Bianca eventually dies. And um, at the very end of the movie, you know, the church that has really surrounded and loved Lars is putting on Bianca's funeral. And the very last scene, the last image of the movie is Lars and the real girl, Margot, standing side by side at the, you know, the gravesite. They've just buried the doll, and uh, they're sitting there just kind of looking at her in silence. And, and then eventually Margot kind of says, all right, well, I kind of need to get going. And Lars cuts her off and says, hey, do you want to go on a walk? And she kind of very joyfully, cheerfully changes her plans and decides to go on a walk with him. And then that's how the movie ends. But what happens? What's that saying? That's saying that Lars's relationship with this fake plastic thing, it got replaced, it got displaced by his experience with a real human being. And he's freed up from this fiction to actually be, have an opportunity to experience real love. And so really, the, the invitation for you tonight is to have whatever sort of fictional God you may be serving, whether you submit to that God or whether you hate that God, to be liberated from the fiction and to be ushered into an opportunity to really experience real love with the real God. And so how can you do that? Well... You enjoy the love of Jesus. You submit to his agenda for your life. And you understand and you rest in and you live out the story of Jesus. So consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, would you be so kind as to enable us to see the cross, that it would liberate us to trust you in deeper ways, knowing that when you come into our life and you start rearranging things and confronting things and cutting things out, as painful and as hard as that may feel, that you would give us all the reassurance that it is because you love us, you are for us. And would that really begin to open up the pathway to to experience your love for us in a deeper way? Father, I, I know it is so easy, even as a Christian, to just kind of go on autopilot go through the motions, say, yeah, 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 I, I, I kind of sign off on all this, I believe all this. Father, help me, help these folks here to go deeper into the heart of God, to taste, to enjoy, to experience, to relish in your great love for us, who you are and what you have done. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.